Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can see the list of them on the homepage at justthenews.com. Today, a fascinating spy story that's really going to get you thinking about what the government's been up to for decades. I have been asked several times lately about a story that I first reported in 2016 because it has so many applications and implications when it comes to what we're learning today about government spying on journalists and politicians and private citizens. One of my journalist friends emailed me some of the latest news and said, doesn't this sound familiar as in what had happened to me in terms of the government spying on me? In this instance, the news as reported by the Washington Post has to do with a company called NSO Group, which apparently creates spyware. There's an industry in this, of course, in creating tools to use in surveillance. And there are many legitimate reasons why people do surveillance. But the story talks about having the spyware licensed, in this case, to an Israeli firm, where it was then used to hack into smartphones that belong to journalists, human rights activists, business executives, and others. The spyware supposedly came with the capability to activate various things, such as the microphone and the camera in the phone without anybody being aware that it was even on so that people could be listened into. The ability to exfiltrate files. Well, all of this is old news if you've been watching news about my case over the past decade, because that was all the same technology I spoke about that was involved in the hacking by government officials into my computer system when I was working at CBS News as an investigative reporter. And as I reported, when CBS News made the official announcement that indeed my computers had been hacked into, the forensics showed, as well as my human sources said, the capabilities included. They were able to monitor all of my keystrokes, activate by using Skype the computer's microphone without me knowing it so that they could listen in on audio. They were able to exfiltrate or take out files and look at them. They were able to look through the photographs that I had. They were able to use my computer to get into the proprietary CBS News news system, which of course CBS News was not happy to hear about. And someone even planted classified documents deep in a part of the computer that, from what I understand, is called the BIOS, the operating system, a place that I wouldn't even know exists. So all of these things have been done. Now it's just the latest news. It's a particular company and probably more updated surveillance software that does these things on behalf of bad government actors that may be using this sort of technology for political or nefarious purposes. And why wouldn't they? Every time government officials or intel sources in the United States get caught doing something improper or illegal or giving false information to Congress about that sort of thing, nothing really happens to them. And Congress goes on to reauthorize the ability for them to expand their opportunity to surveil American citizens, even political enemies, politicians, journalists, and so on. 
And to me, that's the big lesson in all of this. I mean, from the time the NSA contractor Edward Snowden first began to reveal these massive abuses and gave so much detail of what was happening, what our intel agencies were doing to U.S. citizens. In some cases, he alleged it was completely illegal slash unconstitutional. But every time there's a new revelation of a wrongdoing or even the FISA Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court that approves secret wiretaps on U.S. citizens when the court finds out there have been abuses on the part of Intel officials. Again, nothing really happens other than the Intel officials involved are allowed to say, wow, that's our mistake. We're going to have to train people better next time. So again, why wouldn't they continue to do any kind of surveillance they want to do for any purpose that they want to do it for when there's never going to be any repercussions when they're caught. And of the vast amounts of surveillance that I think is safe to assume that is going on, what we've found out about is only the tiniest fraction or slice of what's really happening. And yet that in of itself is outrageous enough. And I think so much of it is leaked out that over time, it's almost as if we've gotten numb to the fact it used to be where I think people would have been horribly outraged to hear about cases of surveillance and spying that we now know about that are kind of greeted with a ho-hum on the part of the public. I think young people today have grown numb to these reports because there's so many of them, whereby they kind of think, of course the government's spying on us. Why wouldn't they? We all know that. And that acceptance or complacency, the lack of outrage, that's really dangerous. Before I go into some detail about the main story that I want to talk about, let's go over a couple of the very public incidents where we know somebody involved in the government along the way did something wrong because information leaked out. For example, in 2009, somebody leaked the unmasked name, as they say, of Congresswoman Jane Harmon to the press. The Bush administration, NSA, had incidentally recorded and saved Harmon's phone conversations with pro-Israel lobbyists who are under investigation for espionage. Why is that an outrage? Well, the whole notion that Intel officials would be listening to members of Congress, I mean, we now know they've done that probably more routinely than anybody suspected, but there was a time when the notion of Intel officials being anywhere close to members of Congress would have been considered such an outrage. They're not supposed to do that for the mere fact that this could be used for political purposes. They could be gathering information or bad actors could be gathering information to be used as leverage or blackmail. They just shouldn't be doing it. And this so-called incidental recording has been a big problem over the years. Incidental recording meaning, well, you know, the Congress member was not a target of an investigation, but just happened to be on the phone with a legitimate target or with somebody that Intel officials were legitimately listening to, and therefore they accidentally heard this conversation. Well, someone who accidentally heard the conversation and recorded it, saved it, and leaked the conversation and the name of the congresswoman to the press. So none of that's legal, but no word that anything ever happened as a result of that. The same year, 2009, we had a hint of somebody who said the FBI might be doing something bad because the information was classified, this FBI contractor named Shimei Leibowitz couldn't say exactly what he knew, but 
He leaked some documents to the media because he said he felt that what the FBI was doing was, quote, an abuse of power and a violation of the law. And he says he had reported that to his superiors at the FBI who did nothing about it. Well, what happened? Was the FBI exposed and taken care of? No. The contractor, the whistleblower, was prosecuted. That definitely sends a pretty clear message. Then the next year, 2010, maybe you remember, there was the Army Intelligence Analyst Bradley Manning, who began illegally leaking classified information to WikiLeaks. And among that material, besides other things, was information that showed the U.S. is extensively spying on the United Nations. You probably remember, already know, that in 2010, the government secretly applied for a warrant to obtain Google email information belonging to Fox News reporter James Rosen in a leak investigation without telling Rosen. This created a big stink when that came out. I believe they even had looked at uh, James Rosen's family members, his parents' phone records. Really outrageous, because again, there was a time before all of this was kind of accepted, or at least we'd become numb to it. There was a time when the FBI was not supposed to get anywhere near reporters, just like members of Congress and political figures. And then in 2010, I've talked about this before, and I think this never receives the attention it deserves, because I think this explains a lot about surveillance that's been going on the past decade or so. In 2010, there was an internal email that was ultimately leaked to WikiLeaks that was entitled Obama Leak Investigations. Now, this was an email that was exchanged uh, between executives at a global intelligence company. Some people call it the shadow CIA, a company called Stratfor. So these executives are speaking to each other, and they claim in the email that Obama's then Homeland Security Advisor John Brennan, later of the CIA, was targeting journalists. Well, we now know that was the case, and this email was laying it all out there. The quote was, from one Stratford official to another, quote, Brennan is behind the witch hunts of investigative journalists learning information from inside the Beltway sources. Think about that. Brennan is behind the witch hunts of investigative journalists learning information from inside the Beltway sources. I mean, that confirms what I thought all along and also what my sources told me when I learned of the government spying on me. I wasn't the only one. I just was lucky enough to have the sources well-placed sources that are able to identify and find the software and prove it forensically. Most journalists who may suspect that's happened to them in light of the news of these things going on, they wouldn't have a way to prove it. The software in the computer at the time was hidden or disguised. It would not show up in a malware search. It was made to look like something that belonged in the computer. So only because, again, I had well-placed sources who knew how to find this stuff where it appears in the computer and what it looks like, I was able to see it. But this is happening and was happening, I think, to many journalists. The email continued. It said, quote, Note there is a specific tasker from the White House to go after anyone printing materials negative to the Obama agenda. Oh, my, even the FBI is shocked. I mean, with that laid out there, you might think, that someone in Congress would want to talk to these officials and find out where they got their information, but nothing. And in fact, every time members of Congress do want to look into these alleged surveillance abuses 
or abuses by Intel officials, it seems as though, according to them, both Democrats and Republicans, their party leaders step in and stop them from doing additional oversight or stop them from instituting reforms when they re-up certain surveillance authorities. It's left up to you to guess why Democrat and Republican Party leaders would not want their members to inquire into this area or to try to stop this type of surveillance. But I can only tell you that these intelligence officials and contractors and contacts have great sway over members of Congress or at least over the party leaders who are able to dictate to their members. Also in the 2011 time period, there was another member of Congress that was being incidentally listened to by intelligence officials and was likewise recorded and the recordings leaked to the press. None of this should happen. All of that's a crime on somebody's part. This was communications involving Congressman Dennis Kucinich and a Libyan official. So again, more evidence that intelligence officials are picking up communications with members of Congress under the auspices of, well, we are listening to the foreign official and we just happen to be overhearing the member of Congress. But again, they're not supposed to save the member of Congress's conversations and let their names and the conversations be leaked to the press. Moving to the 2012 time period, we know regarding surveillance by the government, there's specific forensics that show, for example, at 10.30 p.m. on February 13th, 2012, the government remote intruders secretly downloaded new spy software into my CBS work computer, the software we can tell was secretly attached to a legitimate Hotmail email and then downloaded in the background after a pop-up ad appeared when I was working on my computer. Of course, I didn't know any of that in the time. That's something that forensics later proved. About this same time, in violation of long-standing practices, the Department of Justice secretly sees personal and work phone records of journalists from the Associated Press, again under the auspices of a leak investigation. When that later came out, again, all hell broke loose, at least for a short period of time, because this was something that was outrageous at the time and should never have been allowed. Again, in 2012, Senators Ron Wyden and Mark Udall, both Democrats, who had classified knowledge because they were members of the Senate Intelligence Committee. They couldn't give a lot of details, but they did publicly warn that there was a backdoor search loophole or searches by government of incidental collection of innocent Americans. And the quote from them at the time was, as it is written, there is nothing to prohibit the intelligence community from searching through a pile of communications which may have been incidentally or accidentally collected without a warrant to deliberately search for the phone calls or emails of specific Americans. So they were warning about something that we now know had absolutely happened. Again, they're collecting all kinds of records of innocent Americans accused of nothing, something that would have been considered unconstitutional by most standards, but they're collecting the records under the auspices of, well, it's incidental or accidental collection while we are listening to legitimate targets. And of course, there's a way that bad actors could want to get to a particular person but not be able to get a warrant. So they find somebody around that person to pretend to be the target, maybe a foreign person that's easier to listen in on. 
who they know is communicating with the real person they want to listen to, and then they pretend that it was an accident or it was incidental collection when they pick up the communications of the American person. The following year, actually just a couple of months later, you may remember if you've been around long enough, this did get a lot of attention at the time. The Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, testified to Congress and falsely stated, in answer to a question from Senator Wyden, who knew better, falsely stated that intelligence officials were not collecting mass data on tens of millions of Americans. The very next month, we didn't know this at the time, but we later learned the government's FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, secretly approved the latest FBI request to continue obtaining daily telephone records of millions of U.S. Verizon customers. Remember, Clapper had just said to Congress that that wasn't happening, and the judge ordered Verizon to turn over the information to the NSA, directly contradicting Clapper's March 12th testimony. And then, that same month, we didn't know it at the time, it was later revealed, there was a secret government memo that discussed how the U.S. was collecting information directly from the servers of Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, PalTalk, AOL, Skype, YouTube, and Apple. That was only revealed by the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden later. It was June 2013 when Snowden stepped forward, started releasing documents. There was a big controversy at the time because I believe the original reporters who had his information decided not to publish it. And only when it began to be published by Glenn Greenwald and company in the foreign press did the domestic press come out with their own work and information about it because another news agency had already done so. And what happened? Well, there was day after day of outrage over these documents, very specific documents and information that Snowden released. But Snowden was charged with three felonies after he fled the U.S. And it was almost as if we forgot about the information that he revealed. We were distracted from it by the game of, as I call it, where's Snowden, much like where's Waldo, the press each day reporting on, well, was he in Russia? Was he going to fly to Cuba? And not really looking at the substance of the things that he had revealed. And when his revelations proved that Director of National Intelligence Clapper had given false testimony to Congress a couple of months earlier, what happened? Well, Clapper was allowed to apologize, and pretty much nothing happened. In March 2014, Congress accused the CIA of improperly accessing Senate Intelligence Committee computers. But CIA Director John Brennan denied it at the time. Again, so outrageous that CIA officials would be getting anywhere near staffers or members of Congress computers the Senate Intelligence Committee, no less, the actual committee that does oversight of the CIA. Well, Brennan's denials, much like Clapper's, proved to be false and untrue. A couple of months later, the CIA Inspector General revealed that indeed five CIA officials had improperly accessed the Senate Intelligence Committee computers and searched certain staff emails. Well, what happened to that? Pretty much nothing. Brennan apologized to the Senate staff, and all was forgotten and forgiven. Not only that, Congress continued to allow the expansion of surveillance authority by intelligence officials, the very officials who had been caught giving false information and potentially abusing the authority in the past. There was the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, which passed. 
This required private internet companies to transmit cyber threat indicators to the Department of Homeland Security, granting the companies immunity from prosecution for sharing customers' personal data in those cases. So again, a lot of watchdogs saw this as more potential for abuse that was allowing, if not mandating, internet companies to give certain information over to the Department of Homeland Security and then granting them immunity from prosecution for having done so. This same month, December 2015, there was an interesting report from the Wall Street Journal that showed the Obama administration had, here's this word again, incidentally collected private communications by members of Congress while it spied on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So again, Netanyahu, considered by some an enemy of the Obama administration, these were political adversaries more or less, but here is the Obama administration intel officials collecting private communications of members of Congress in this country as they're speaking with Israel's prime minister. And one quote in the Wall Street Journal article said by somebody who was a senior U.S. official, the NSA sweeping up private communications with U.S. lawmakers and American Jewish groups raised fears of an O.S. moment, an O expletive moment. One senior U.S. official said that the executive branch would be accused of spying on Congress. Well, I guess as it turns out, there was not much reason to fear because every time one of these reports comes out, not much seems to happen. So all of that is a long preamble to a story that I'm going to tell you about after a short break that looks as far back as about 1997 and some outrageous things that took place that I'll bet you never heard about. Back in a moment. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. We are back to take a look at a story I first reported in 2016, but it reveals information that happened quite a bit earlier than that. And that's what makes it so surprising or why it was surprising to me at the time. I think one of the most significant things to note about this story is that this takes place prior to 9-11. A lot of the surveillance abuses that we've learned about have taken place after 9-11 when the government was able to greatly expand its surveillance authority in the name of national security to try to protect us from terrorists. But all of this that we're going to talk about in just a moment was taking place prior to that. So to set this up, this starts in October of 1997, and a man named Joe Nascio was CEO of Quest Communications. Do you remember that? That was a big phone company at the time out west. And as the story begins, which you're going to hear, as I first reported on Full Measure, 
Nacio was at work one day when one of his vice presidents told him he had an unexpected visitor. Here's where the story picks up. He came in and he said, uh, Joe, we have a general downstairs who wants to meet you, which I thought was pretty surprising because you know, generals just don't drop by. He was a three-star. Who is the general? His name is classified, believe it or not. Who it was, I'm, not, I'm still not allowed to disclose. The general was from a U.S. intelligence agency interested in paying Quest to use its cutting-edge global fiber optics network for classified programs. But to learn more, Nashio first needed a top-secret security clearance. I had my clearance by January of 1998. We received that contract shortly thereafter, and that led to us working with multiple intelligence agencies. Okay, stopping there for just a minute to clarify, we're talking about intelligence agencies sending a general to phone companies to solicit them with secret contracts to work for them in providing information. This is, again, in the 1997 time period, and that's what had happened to Nashio, required him getting certain security clearance so that he could be clued in on some of this information. So here they are, pre-9-11, working very closely with intelligence agencies. Here's the story picking up again. His job as CEO of Quest became steeped in a secretive world of classified meetings and clandestine government contracts. He's still barred from saying exactly what the project's involved. So you could either put equipment in, you could either monitor. There's a whole bunch of things you can do. As head of a telecom company, you were meeting with top spy agency people? Yes. Um, what, I'm, what I'm allowed to say that I worked with four clandestine security agencies and senior government officials. For several years, Nashio says, government requests to monitor and surveil Quest customers came with proper legal authority and brought Quest lots of cash. The telecom companies, they make a lot of money off these contracts when they cooperate with the intel agencies. But it's all done in a classified way that nobody sees it. So yes, we made money. And again, as a CEO of a public corporation, that's good business besides being patriotic. Was it hundreds of millions of dollars over the years? Oh, easily, yes. Okay, you heard it. The intel agencies, as far back as 97, and I'm sure sooner, were paying phone companies, telecom agencies, hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money in dark contracts to get them to do a variety of secret classified things, whether it's installing listening devices or turning over data or whatnot. Picking up the story. Mutually beneficial relationship continued until February 27th, 2001, when Nashio says he got an astonishing request at a meeting at the headquarters for the National Security Agency, or NSA. Okay, again, setting the time frame. This is months before 9-11, so the terrorist attacks haven't happened yet, but they're already doing this aggressive surveillance that involves U.S. phone companies and potentially U.S. citizens. I fly into Washington. My guys meet me, take me to a skiff that we have that's in Maryland. A skiff is one of those rooms that are designed to specs that you can't have eavesdropping on. When I grew up and we used to watch Maxwell Smart on television, it was the cone of silence thing. I go to there, get briefed, and then at the end, which was very surprising, a new request is made of us. By whom? By someone across the table. Um, I was supposed to meet with Admiral Hayden that day. He didn't show up at the last minute, which should have put yellow flashing lights in my... He was head of the NSA at the time. The he was the three-star head of the NSA who Bush later appoints to be four stars and runs the CIA. 
So when that request came, I was a little bit surprised. All right, let me break in again to clarify. So a request that the CEO of Quest Communications cannot discuss with specifics publicly because it's classified, a request of him was made in a secret meeting with Intel officials. Here's Nashio with more. It didn't sound right to me. As a matter of fact, it sounded very wrong to me. What was the request? Well, it was a request to uh, do something that, under the law, I didn't believe the uh, foreign intelligence agencies, particularly NSA, had, were authorized to do unless they had a FISA warrant. A FISA warrant would come from the secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and would authorize the NSA to do something that was otherwise illegal for it to do, collect data in the U.S. And you can't say exactly what they asked. No, no, that remains classified. Something was asked. I asked if they had a FISA warrant. They said it wasn't required. I thought that was pretty strange. If there was no warrant, he says he asked if the White House had given executive authority for the project. They said they, they wasn't required. This was under President Bush. Yes, this was under President Bush. And this is prior to 9-11. Um, so I said we, we couldn't do it. And we wouldn't do it. The 9-11 terrorist attacks are often cited as justification for the government's controversial programs to collect information on Americans without court warrants. But the NSA proposition to Quest was nearly seven months before 9-11, according to Nascio. After that meeting, there were repeated requests over the next several months. And I continued to answer the request by saying, look, show me legal authority and we'll be happy to do it. Okay, but I can't do it without legal authority. You know, I know I can be sued civilly, but the government can't. How did you begin to understand that you were becoming odd man out? It was June 5th of 2001, about four months later. And I'm sitting next to Dick Clark, and Dick leans over to me and he says, uh, uh, kind of incidental to the purpose of the meeting, Joe, you know that contract that you thought you guys were getting? Uh, and he named it. I said, yeah. He says, well, it's, it's going to someone else. And I was a little bit surprised because we had been working on this a long time. Dick, or Richard Clark, was President Bush's chief counterterrorism advisor. He didn't respond to our request for comment. He's shown here in 2002 giving Nascio a presidential certificate. In this photo, Nascio and other CEOs are shown with Clark being sworn in on the president's National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee. Nascio says that contract Quest wasn't getting after all dealt a major blow. Okay. Are you getting the picture here? According to Nascio, he's not going along with what he sees as illegal requests or requests to do something illegal in the United States by the intelligence agencies. And one can surmise it had something to do with surveilling of U.S. citizens, which the NSA is not supposed to do. And when he refused and was apparently the only one among the telecom companies who did refuse, he was now having a giant contract pulled from him, apparently in retaliation. At least that's how he saw it. A valuable contract? For yeah, yeah, we're talking in the hundreds of millions. Okay, we're not talking 10 million. We're talking big deal contract. Well, what, what ends up over the next several months is about four or five contracts we thought we were going to get. We never got. Nascio viewed it as reprisal for his refusal to take part in what he viewed as an illegal program. It was in excess of 500 million that I was counting on that didn't come in that year in 2001 alone. Nascio left Quest the following year without mending that fence. 
Then, three years later, in August of 2005, he got a call. The Justice Department was investigating him for insider trading of Quest stock four years earlier. Nascio claims the government was targeting him in retaliation, something the government strongly denies. His defense hinged on telling the jury how his relationship with the spy agencies had gone sour. But there was a catch. It was all classified. Nascio lost his case. Okay, I didn't give a lot of detail when I did the story about that, but Nascio had just such a fascinating story to tell about feeling as though he was being targeted, but the main thing he needed to tell the jury was this was reprisal. This whole made-up case, he says, about insider trading was reprisal against him by intelligence agencies for him not going along with what they wanted. But he was forbidden from presenting that information to the jury. The judge sided with intelligence officials or the federal government, the Department of Justice, in saying that he could not give that crucial information to the jury so that they could understand why, in his view, these accusations were being lodged against him. I'm barred under the law from bringing any of it up. I'm barred from the contracts. I'm barred from naming the agencies. I'm barred from naming who I was with. I was even barred from saying the meeting on February 27th happened. Some of it would later become public. About the time of Nascio's indictment, the government's controversial programs were revealed for the first time. This is a highly classified program that is crucial to our national security. The New York Times reported the NSA had been using phone companies to collect private information of U.S. citizens without court warrants. The NSA specifically targets the communications of everyone. It ingests them by default. Later, NSA contractor Edward Snowden blew the whistle in this explosive interview with The Guardian. He exposed the Obama administration's vast expansion of data collection. I, sitting at my desk, uh, certainly had the authorities to, to wiretap anyone from you or your accountant to a federal judge to even the president if I had a personal email. It was Snowden's example of a federal judge that hit home with Nascio. By then, he was serving a four-and-a-half-year prison sentence. In a bizarre twist, the judge in Nascio's case, Edward Nottingham, was soon embroiled in scandal, accused of soliciting prostitutes and allegedly asking one to lie to investigators. He resigned and apologized, but wasn't prosecuted. All right, that's as I hear myself report that and trying to summarize complicated stuff. I'm hearing this a couple of years later. It sounds confusing, but what I'm trying to report there is the judge who barred Nascio in his trial from saying things that Nascio really had to tell the jury, that Nascio thought was very unfair that he wasn't allowed to tell the jury in his own defense. The judge that sided with the intel agencies and the Department of Justice had a weird porn case raised against him later and resigned in scandal, which leads you to think somebody had blackmail information or somebody may have known this information about the judge. So these ideas that information is secretly collected on U.S. citizens and figures, perhaps by intel agencies, to use when they need to use that information later, perhaps as leverage in a court case or to get a judge to do something, this all would seem to fit into that pattern, although nobody proved that was the case in this instance, but it certainly raises suspicions and questions. After his dealing with the spy agencies, Nascio wonders if they knew about Nottingham's private scandal. Could that have been held over the judge's head as he ruled for the government against Nascio? 
Look, I think the intelligence agencies in that time frame were wiretapping government officials, judges. I mean, they were just monitoring everything. Government officials call Nascio a convicted felon whose speculation can't be believed. Nottingham firmly denies anyone spoke to him about his personal scandals during Nascio's trial. An appeals panel overturned Nascio's conviction, saying Judge Nottingham erred in a key ruling, but the guilty verdict was upheld on appeal. President Bush's NSA and CIA chief Michael Hayden, a Nascio point of contact back then, didn't respond to our request for comment, but has championed the controversial surveillance. Everything that the agency has done has been lawful. It's been briefed to the appropriate members of, of Congress. That the only purpose of the agency's activities is to preserve the security and the liberty of the American people. And I think we've done that. President Obama also defends the government's mass data collection. When it comes to telephone calls, nobody is listening to your telephone calls. That's not what this program's about. My advice to people is put nothing on the internet that you wouldn't take a billboard out on 42nd Street and Broadway and publicize. You have your bank records, your health records, you're looking at porn sites, your illegal dating or whatever you're doing is all known. By the government. And by their agents. Now, let's remember who the agents are. The agents are the telephone companies. The agents are the banks. The agents are Apple. The agents are Google. The agents are Facebook. They're all involved. What do you tell Apple if they were to call you and ask you for advice? I would have said, keep this very quiet and, and cooperate. Because you're going to lose this one in court. And, and what's going to happen to you when this is all over is for the next five years of your life, Every federal agency that has some jurisdiction on you is going to be crawling all over Apple. The reference to Apple is from when this story first aired. It had to do with the FBI trying to get inside a terrorist iPhone at the time after a terrorist and Islamic extremist had killed 14 people in California. And a federal judge ordered Apple to create software to unlock the iPhone. But Apple was fighting the order And the interesting thing about this is, while the FBI was pretending it could not get into the iPhone, I'm told by sources that certainly the government had the technology to get into the iPhone and was pretending or for some reason stating publicly that it could not perhaps for publicity purposes to make the iPhone seem more secure or to make the intelligence agencies seem as though they were not doing such a thing. That conviction of Nascio, by the way, was overturned on appeal in a decision that found that judge, Nottingham, had made key errors. But the government got the conviction reinstated by a split judges panel. He actually served prison time. What's the takeaway from all of this? Well, a couple of things. One could say it shows that when somebody's not cooperating, what they see as illegal requests by government intel officials, they send a message They not only withdraw hundreds of millions of dollars worth of contracts, but they can send you to prison and make an example out of you. And in the bigger picture, I think this shows that even prior to 9-11, these alleged abuses by our intel agencies were going on, this surveillance of American citizens, and it's only continued since because nobody has taken action when these things are exposed to curb it. So why wouldn't it continue? And I think we can expect more of the same until and unless something is finally done about it. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, as well as my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. 
and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got, he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable. It's durable. It's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good. They feel good. They wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those my slippers. You got to have them. They're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code JUSTNEWS when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. You've done your homework. Investing in Bitcoin can be risky, but despite its risks, there's potential for growth. So how do you Bitcoin thoughtfully? By investing in bits of it through a Bitcoin-linked ETF. When you invest in Bitcoin with the Acorns app, a Bitcoin ETF is just a topping on your diversified ETF portfolio of stocks and bonds. Acorns helps you manage some of Bitcoin's inherent risks by setting guardrails in place that let you invest up to 5% of your overall portfolio in Bitcoin exposure. Plus. Due to Bitcoin's historically low correlation to stocks, meaning when the price of stocks move up or down, it doesn't always influence Bitcoin's value. Acorn's approach to Bitcoin helps you diversify your investments even further. All you need is your spare change to get started. Get a bonus $10 in investments when you start investing in Bitcoin thoughtfully at acorns.com podcast. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Acorn's does not offer a direct investment in Bitcoin. Learn more at acorns.com.